Let's go. Let's go. Oh, oh did you want to? Sorry. sorry. I'll let you. I'll let you. Next time. I'm in love with you. Snap out of it. I'll have what she's having. Too many guys think of a concept or I complete them or I'm going to make them alive. I'm just a fucked up girl who's looking for my own peace of mind. Don't assign me yours. Caustic wit is my religion. I would make a great queen because I am so stubborn. I say when it comes to stardom and Lauren, there are no accidents. Hi, Karen Peterson. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 115 of Citizen Dame, the podcast where we know lots of things and we're going to talk to you all about what we know. I am Karen Peterson, joined as always by Lauren Humphreys Brooks. Hello. And she knows almost everything. Occasionally she gets it wrong, as we learned last week. <laughs> but then I correct myself. I correct myself, <laughs> thus making me right. There you go. So. <laughs> we also have a special guest this week. We are rejoined by our very lovely Kimberly Pierce. Hello. Kim, how are you? Good. Thank you for having me back. We're so excited. I'm I so we were happy. talking we were talking about having a guest this week to talk about female or feminist film criticism. And I was like, hey, you know who has a channel on YouTube called The Female Gaze oh, Productions? <laughs> Why don't you talk a little bit about what you've been up to, Kim? Uh, that has been taking up the breadth of my time, especially, you know, because quarantine is quarantine. It's basically been me alone in my basement, just watching everything I can and trying to record videos about it. Um you know, going from trying to tackle, got a few TCM kind of reviews coming up and then have fixating on game shows as anybody who's been watching the YouTube channel has probably seen. But I've been doing that, been playing a little bit with some podcasting stuff of my own and just having a blast over here trying to keep socially distant. Well, fun. What have you been up to this week, Lauren? Uh, I don't know. What have I been up to this week? All of the weeks begin to blur together. And then it's just like, I've been watching, been watching movies, been like watching what we do in the shadows, which just like, you know, keeps me grounded, yes. keeps me happy. <laughs> I love that show so much. Uh, I am, as I said on Twitter recently, I am very invested in Guillermo's arc this season. I am just like quite emotional about it. And, uh, yeah, it's 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 good. But and then yep. also, you know, as as always fighting with stupid men on the internet because that's that's one of the things that I do. It's our lot in life, fighting the good fight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This week I well, last week I started cuz I've been binging like trying to catch up on a lot of shows. And cuz over at Award Circuit this year I was it was nice because I was I was just put in as the assistant editor for film. So I wasn't in charge of TV. Occasionally, there are certain shows, like What We Do in the Shadows was my baby. Um, This Is Us is my baby. So it was like, I still got those, but the rest of it is like, I didn't have to worry about TV at all. So there's tons of stuff I haven't watched, haven't caught up on. Well, then our assistant editor for TV stepped away. And so now I'm doing both of them. So I was just like, I've got to catch up on a lot of stuff. (laughs) Like, all of a sudden. (laughs) So... Um, yeah, TV so I've been stop. <laughs> yeah. So I've been I've worked it out where because my day job, I can follow 
the arc of an episode of a TV show while I'm doing my work. It's harder to concentrate on a movie while I'm working. So Mm -hmm. that's been, it's given me the chance where I have had time. So during, I kind of have made a schedule for myself where during the day, I'll watch a couple of shows, like a couple of episodes of a show. And then at night I watch movies. It's a work at home wonderful. Yeah, it really is. So it's like, man, I couldn't do this at the office. I would get in trouble. (laughs) But um, but yeah, so last week I started The Handmaid's Tale and I finished that this week. And that was interesting. And I went right from The Handmaid's Tale into Mrs. America. (laughs) And I was just like, oh my gosh, I'm so tired. That's the that's toxic women. (laughs) (laughs) who think that they are like the moral superiors of everyone else and they're just helping the patriarchy ah you mean they're Karens (laughs) they are Karens (laughs) yes they are I'm sorry I just had to do it I'm so sorry Karen it's not your fault no it's so funny it's like I mean I personally just for personal reasons wish they had chosen a different name and I definitely have some suggestions based on people that I've known in my life but I also am not offended by it and I totally understand what it means and it's actually what offends me is when people claim that it's racist and sexist I'm like oh my gosh no yeah I wish I I do kind of wish that they had chosen not that they had like a different not not like not a person's name because that just seems a little unfair there's there are people named Karen who have nothing to do with this (laughs) right well what I've been what I've it's been really sweet how a couple of people have told me, like, you are not a Karen. And I'm like, thank you. you <laughs> I mean, I Karen, personally Karen. have never identified as a Karen anyway, because <laughs> that's not a name that I would have wanted to choose for myself. But it's a family name and I'm stuck with it. <laughs> I was telling my friend um, a week or two ago that I had actually, even before this, like, really reemerged as a big thing, um, for a long time, like my a lot of my friends just call me K and I sign stuff just with my first initial. And I had actually for a long time been contemplating just like just going by K, like just everywhere. And then I got a new boss in January and her name is K. And I was like, well, now I can't do that. Oh. <laughs> so oh well. You were there first. You should get to keep the name. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> find a different name (laughs) yeah um someone asked me what one of my suggestions would be and I was like Linda definitely Linda they're like what did Linda do to you I'm like oh I have stories (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but yeah anyway I I honestly I think the memes are hilarious and keep them coming like keep tagging me tagging me in them folks because they're really funny (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I am not offended by them. Yeah. Anyway. Um, so let's see. Last week we announced we are doing a contest. We are giving away three months of the Criterion channel, which is very exciting because some of you have been really wanting to get the Criterion channel and can't afford it. Others of you think you don't need it in your life and you don't know how much you really do. Um, So this gives you an opportunity to experience it for yourselves. And as we mentioned, uh, and we'll talk about this again at the end of the the episode, but it's really easy to enter. Just email us, DM, DM us, comment with your most surprising blind spot and uh, cinema blind spot. 
the movie that you have not seen that other people would probably be very surprised that you haven't seen. I actually just filled my biggest blind spot last night. I have finally seen The Godfather Part 2. <laughs> Good! Good for you! It's one of those movies that I just had not, just hadn't watched. There wasn't a reason. I wasn't avoiding oh, yeah. it. I hadn't gotten around to it. And I finally watched it last night. And it took up like it's hours. it's That's a night. That's a night of viewing right there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What do you think? <laughs> I started at like 3.30 and I finished it at like 9.30 because I got a phone call in between. And yeah. Oh, it's great. It's it's really great. I actually like the first one better. Um, okay. Okay. But I really liked it. I thought it was. I mean, it's The Godfather and The Godfather Part 2. How can you say anything bad about those, right? Yeah, I just filled mine in quarantine as well. I'd been, Apocalypse Now had been my stated plot for so, so, so long. And I finally got that watch. So I ticked that one off my list. What do you think of that one? That was intense. Mm -hmm. That, so, 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 so much going on there. I I was kind of in awe. I mean, from a visual perspective, I haven't done a narrative crackdown on it at all. But just from a visual narrative, you know, cinematic perspective, I was blown away. Yeah. I just rewatched that like a week or two ago. It had been years since I'd seen it. And, uh, yeah, it's oh, that's a rough one. Yeah, it's <laughs> that's a trip. <laughs> I, uh, my my mother actually got to see that in an early. It was like a, a, a really advanced screening back uh-huh. in the day, like back you know when it was released. But it was before they had added um, music to it, so there was no soundtrack. Oh, it that was uh, just creepy. Oh, so and she and she said it was really yeah, it was really intense and, and everything. Yeah, because you did yeah, because you didn't you got the sounds and you got the explosions and the helicopter and all that, but you didn't get any music on it or anything like that. And she said it was it was really really cool. But um, yeah, what's your uh, what's one of your biggest most surprising blind spots, Lauren? I mean, I have none. Uh, <laughs> of course. <laughs> I've seen all the movies. Uh, no, I was thinking about this. I, I think that I'm very, very weak on um, Fellini. Mm. And it's so, like, I haven't seen, I haven't seen La Strada. I haven't seen Knights of Cabiria. Uh, and actually, I haven't seen most Fellini films. I've seen a few. Um, I mean, I've seen Eight and a Half and, and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, I think that probably La Strada or Knights of Cabiria, just in terms of the films that I'm like, oh, I should really have seen this. And I just haven't, haven't done it yet. Yeah. Um, mhm. Now I'm like, hmm, now that I've watched The Godfather Part 2, I wonder what my most surprising one is now. I don't know. I think it's a question of also like what would you consider surprising versus what someone else would consider surprising? True. Like like I was I was thinking cuz I was also like, well there're a bunch of Bergmans that I haven't seen, but I've seen the big ones, right? I've seen right. um you know, I've seen The Seventh Seal uh and and things like that i've also seen some just random ones just because i was like that sounds interesting um but yeah it's it's like where do you what do you think is is important to have seen i guess and that can really vary from person to person Mm -hmm. on letterboxd just looking at the most popular films and the ones that i have not seen the top three are drive by ryan with ryan gosling which i don't consider that like that's surprising huh okay scott pilgrim versus the world which i started watching and never finished and a clockwork orange which is one that i've 
I think I've kind of avoided that one. I've had opportunities to watch it and I've chosen not to, but I've never that's a that's one for me and I know I put that in my blind spot list as well, but it's also one I'm very squeamish to tackling. Mm-hmm. I've never been that great with Kubrick and it makes me nervous. <laughs> it's a tough film. You know, I I actually and I think I think your mileage may vary depending upon how much that sort of thing bothers you because mm-hmm. I remember when I saw it I, I was in the same room with like several friends and I I was watching it and then like they came into the room and they were like oh my god I do not want to see this and they like ran out right um it didn't bother me as much as I thought it was going to it is disturbing like there's no question about that but I think that in some ways it had been built up so much that when I actually got to see it I was like oh this is this is dark and this is disturbing but it's not like you know i can't stand to watch it so Mm. that's kind of that reminds me of how i felt with the exorcist everybody had the Uh, the exorcist the you know how terrifying that is and then i got through it i'm like oh okay that was (laughs) that's a movie another one i just watched for the first time but that was one that i had chosen for years not to watch and i Mm -hmm. swear i never would and then finally it was actually because of that shutter show cursed mm-hmm. films i was like all right you know what? i'm just gonna watch it whatever and yeah i felt the same way i was like this is not scary mm-hmm. um i think that it's it builds the intensity really well oh, definitely most um definitely. but i, I think, think if i'd seen this you know even 10 years ago i might have found it much scarier than i do now i think that it's so iconic at this point that by the time like if you haven't seen it by the time you actually get around to seeing it you've seen parodies of it Mm -hmm. you've seen films that do versions of the same kind of scares you've seen like I mean I remember when I was a kid there's a Daffy Duck cartoon that's a (laughs) takeoff of The Exorcist like you know there's so much it's such a culture it's such a major cultural touchstone it's kind of like The Shining where the elevators you know spilling blood and everything it's like okay we've seen that because we've all seen the simpsons episode you know uh and so when it happens you're just like oh this must have been really freaky in the 1970s (laughs) but right now it's like oh her head's spinning around yeah they they did that in (laughs) ghostbusters too you know right (laughs) i just kept thinking like man if that was real that would kill her Oh, but yeah, another one that it's like, well, I'm glad I've seen it now. And um, yeah. Um, so let us know what your blind spots are. And we see we have told you about some of ours that I think are pretty surprising. So we're not judging. We just are curious. Um, yeah. So this week, last week, we talked about film criticism in general and kind of uh, why it's important to understand theory some of the history of film some of the uh intention and politics that go into making film this week we want to break down specifically um film feminist film criticism and uh so we are very excited kim to have you here for this discussion because there's a lot to talk about and um we think that you are a great resource for especially when it comes to the historical side of things so first of all Uh, Let's talk about, let's define our terms. What is feminist film criticism? Lauren, why don't you start us off with that? Oh, God. um, (laughs) (laughs) So, so I think that the, the, probably the quickest way to define feminist film criticism is that it's, it's primarily based in um, feminist 
theory, which was influenced by a second wave feminism, uh, which sort of happened in the 1960s and 70s in the United States. And of course, there's a lot of crossover. And that's not at all saying that there wasn't feminist discussion of film prior to that, but that's kind of where most of the texts come from and most of the discussion comes from. Uh, so it's, as we were kind of talking uh, talking last time, there's a lot of overlap in film criticism and in film theory uh, between other other parts of society and other philosophical underpinnings. So it's not surprising that you begin to get this very serious discussion of feminist film criticism and feminist film theory around the same time as you have the rise of the women's movement and some major changes, particularly in American society. So some of the major ones are, of course, Laura Mulvey, who I, we're going to talk about, I think, a little more in depth in a minute. Um, uh, Molly Haskell, uh, Marianne Johansson, um, uh, in, in more of the horror and genre films, uh, Barbara Creed and Carol Clover, uh, did a lot of, of discussion about horror specifically and the way that the female body is represented in horror and the way that women are represented in horror. Um, and particularly, again, it's, it isn't just about, it's about contemporary film for them. So... Carol Clover talked about, you know, she, she wrote a very interesting, um, I believe it's a, I believe it's a full book, although it's one of those things you always read excerpts of called Men, Women, and Chainsaws, uh, which is specifically about kind of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre slasher genre of the male and sort of the, the trope of the male killer going after these beautiful um, shirtless women and things like that. <laughs> so the, the sort of representations of women within that. So, Feminist film theory is, is basically looking at film generally, and usually they're talking about uh, mainstream film, so Hollywood film or uh, popular film via, um, via, a, via a feminist gaze. You know, how do we understand film that is being produced in a patriarchal society, the representations of women within um, cinema, why women are represented the way that they are, and uh, and then also, as time has gone on, what that means going forward, what it means to have a, a female director, what it means, the difference between the male gaze and the female gaze. Is there a difference? Is it possible for cinema to represent the female gaze? Um, is, is the, but is the male gaze just consistent? Is it always going to be something that is sort of hard baked into the nature of cinema because of patriarchal society? Uh, and of course, there's a lot of disagreements, et cetera, but so much of the dialogue is is taking place within um, feminist theory generally. So as feminist theory changes over, you know, from the women's movement over the course, through the backlash over the course of the 80s and 90s and now into the, uh, the aughts and the 20s, um, how does that change with the way that we approach film? I, I don't think I could say it better myself. <laughs> <laughs> I don't honestly think I could even elaborate on that. That covers it completely in my mind. Well, okay. But as a woman and as a woman who loves to critique and, and look at film in a much deeper way, what is mm -hmm. it for you? Um, what kind of what goes into your line of thinking? What are you looking at when you're looking deeply, especially when you're looking at like historical films? I am typically... I started kind of in 
kind of feminist film criticism, you know, film breakdown, working in the kind of post-World War II, so like 1946 to 1962. That was kind of my master's thesis when I kind of discovered what I loved covering. And ever since then, it's kind of shaped, I look at women through the lens of the culture and how all of what's going on at the culture at that time, how it plays into the depictions of sex and gender that we're seeing. I mean, I tend to follow right along with the kind of the second wave ideals because I think so much was shaped and turned by everything that happened really post for Dan, you know, going into the 70s. But looking at, for example, for me, like the 50s, you can totally see everything in you can see things bubbling to the surface in the 50s. It didn't just magically hit. In the 60s, things were percolating. Things were percolating after the war. And really trying to understand, you know, all of this happened because women went to, you know, women went to the factories. Women started working during World War II. And understand turning this into a discussion of where we are as a culture, how culture changes, how it shapes who we are, what we became, what things are leading to. And I mean, I, in my experiences, especially when looking at historical films, historical series, there's, it's so gray. There's very little black and white. It's so gray. And it's film understanding film and understanding really film history it's all about being able to see the gray see you can see the sexism but you can also see through some the either whether it be the story or the star persona of an actor or performer to various little elements you can see aspects where you can see progressive elements or you can appreciate what's happening and where things are leading in in United States culture, particularly, because that's my emphasis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, it's funny because as I've watched more and more classic film, yeah, I've been really surprised by some of the things that I've seen that like, I just didn't think that, you know, people back in the 50s didn't talk like that or think like that and it's been such a weird uh kind of realization i guess that people are basically the same now as as they were then we're just able to be more open about what we think and not having to hide behind you know workarounds to get around censors and things like that um oh sorry go ahead I, I was just going to say, it's interesting, just going off of what uh, both of you are saying, um, it's interesting that femin- that the rise of feminist film criticism, as it were, also coincides with the breakdown of the production code and the breakdown of traditional Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're, and, and what you're talking about, Kim, you're talking about, you know, post-war. So there's kind of a reinforcement of it. But then as you get into the 1950s and into the 60s, even Hollywood films are are beginning to push the the envelope as it exactly were. it things got a lot weaker yeah and and so you're you're getting things that are coming out that are still being censored but not to the same degree there's still you've got an entire new generation of actors that are coming up you've got mm-hmm. people like brando and exactly. dean and marilyn monroe and all of that and so you've got this really interesting transition that's happening historically that's independent of to a certain degree is independent of you know feminism as a thing but it's it's happening concurrently right Mm -hmm. 
And so you're getting these new representations of women and this pushing of the envelope at the same time that you're beginning to get the rise of the, the feminist movement and, and eventually the, the approach to, um, to cinema specifically. Uh, so it's, uh, yeah, it's a really interesting overlap that begins happening right there. Yeah. See, it's funny, my personal experience with, um, with feminism and even looking at anything from a feminist perspective, I, I was primarily raised by a single mom. I mean, my parents got divorced when I was nine and my dad was in the picture, but he didn't really have a hand in raising us after, after that, um, and but it's weird because I still grew up in a very patriarchal household because my mom is right. very much one that she went to work because she had to because she had kids at home that she had to feed and house. And if she had her choice, she would have not been working. She would have had her happy home and marriage and baked cookies for the bake sale and and all those things like that's the that's the mom and wife my mom really wanted to be and she was forced out of that not because she wanted to be you know and so it's like I mean even to this day my mom will say things about you know the ERA or about just like feminism in general that I'm like how did you raise me (laughs) (laughs) And it's just, it's funny, but a lot of that stuff, like when people talk about internalized um, patriarchy and stuff, it's like, yeah, I get that because those are the messages that I grew up with. And I've had to kind of deprogram myself as I've gotten older, as I've, you know, explored the world a little bit more. And, um, and so it's like, I grew up watching movies and thinking there was you know, no big deal about certain aspects of film. And then when I rewatch those same films as an adult, I'm just like, why, why did my mom think that this was fine? You know, like, (laughs) (laughs) like, why is this the ideal world that she wanted to live in? And uh, it's just really funny because I, because of that, I'm able to see kind of both sides of things. I definitely Mm -hmm. am a very proud feminist, but um, but I also kind of am a little bit more understanding in some aspects of where people are coming from and that not everyone who is quote unquote anti-feminist is a terrible person. They're just, a lot of them just look at the world differently and, you know, it's all right, I guess it's their way. <laughs> um, just stand out of, get out of my way. <laughs> <laughs> it's, that, um, it's that internalization, like you're saying, it's yeah. that internalization of patriarch and internalization of not, not necessarily misogyny, but the sexism uh, mm-hmm. of being like, this is yeah. the way that the world is and we're divided by gender, we're divided by women do this and men do that. And that's that's been kind of the attitude. And, and it's a lot of mainstream film in one way or another reinforces that. And that's what, especially early feminist film criticism is trying to critique is saying like, okay, here is what it's reinforcing that we've just kind of accepted as as fact, but it's reinforcing it based upon a, a very patriarchal um, a, and a very sexist society that is actually putting women in, in a particular position that is not advantageous, right, for women or really even for men. I mean, we talk mm-hmm. about toxic masculinity and um, about how patriarchy in itself harms men as well as women. Uh, because it, it becomes more about, it's really more about a power dynamic than it is about gender specifically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. 
Um, and through that, of course, then you get conversations on the male gaze and the female gaze. <laughs> and um, we, Lauren, had put in the link to Laura Mulvey's essay um, in the show notes last week. So hopefully those of you who hadn't read it before got a chance. And those of you who had, but it had been a while, like me, um, have gotten to kind of check check it out again. Um, it's called Visual Pleasure and Narrative Cinema. And um, this is kind of, this is using a psychoanalytical approach to looking at why uh, certain aspects of film are, um, well, Lauren, why don't you go ahead and, and summarize it quickly, and then we'll talk more specifically about what male gaze is, what female gaze is, if there's such a thing as the female gaze, all that. Uh, okay, <laughs> let's see if I can do this. All right, I've you done this do so many times for men. On, I've done this so many times for men on the internet. It's just like, male, read this, <laughs> read <Yep>. this, <laughs> go away, come back, read it, understand it, and then we'll talk. Except not really, because I'm not interested in talking to you. Well, um, they're never going to read it, so you don't have anything to worry about. <laughs> yeah, them, that would require them reading it. <laughs> so, so Laura Mulvey, Laura Mulvey in some ways, um, fairly or unfairly, has become kind of ground zero for feminist film criticism uh, because visual pleasure and narrative cinema was such an influential essay. And it, was, it actually came along quite late. I believe its original publication was like 76. Um, but one of the things that she proposes is, is the concept of the male gaze and the male, the male gaze is complicated. Uh, and, but it is the way that the camera specifically, so not just the characters within the film, but the way that the camera itself looks at people of different genders and specifically the way that it looks at women. And what she's proposing from a psychoanalytic perspective is this concept of um, scopophilia, which is the, the sort of sexual pleasure of looking. So you're not necessarily engaging with someone, it's the peeping Tom kind of syndrome. Uh, you're not necessarily physically involved with anybody. In fact, the person that you're looking at might not even be aware that you're looking, but it is finding fulfillment, finding sexual fulfillment via um, the gaze, via, via looking at someone. And so that's what she's saying. It kind of typifies uh, narrative cinema. And when she says narrative cinema, she's prim she's what she's really talking about is mainstream Hollywood or popular cinema. Um, and the, the major uh, film that she uses and is really a perfect demonstration of this in some ways is Vertigo. And not just the way that, the way that Scotty, the James Stewart character looks at Madeline, um, but also the way that the camera looks at Madeline and the way that the camera looks at Scotty looking at Madeline. Uh, and that, that whole kind of process of looking is meant to evoke a sort of desire um, and, uh, and to, to a certain degree, a, a sexual fulfillment from the male viewer. So the presupposition she is claiming of the male gaze is that the, the camera kind of stands in for the viewer and the intended viewer, the intended audience of all of this is a male spectator. And so when you have the camera looking at female characters, the, the, women, beco the women become these symbols rather than full people. Uh, and 
one of the things that she one of the things that she's claiming and she's in some ways very right about in terms of heterosexual relationships etc um she says in a world ordered by sexual imbalance pleasure and looking has been split between uh, active or male and passive female the determining male gaze projects its fantasy onto the female figure which is styled accordingly so this is the man the male gaze the the male looking at the female um, who is then performing at some level or is being turned into simply an object. Uh, when we've talked about it before, we've discussed um, the difference between uh, objectivity and subjectivity and the woman as object versus the woman as subject. So essentially what we're saying is in films that use the male gaze, uh, and Mulvey is claiming that this is all narrative cinema, um, the woman is the object. She is the passive bearer basically uh and the man is the active looker of course there's always this going to be this divide between them because the male spectator can really only achieve his fulfillment via the camera and via the male character so there's always going to be a separation between the male spectator and uh the the object of desire who's the woman so that's Basically, what she's talking about, it's a little more complicated than that. And um, she actually wrote years later, she wrote kind of a rebuttal to her own thesis, mm -hmm. uh, which essentially said that, you know, she was being a little extreme and she was intending to be extreme. The, the essay is intended to provoke people. It's intended to begin. I believe she put it, it, it was intended to be a provocation, not a manifesto. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's not saying this is the way that it is. It's saying here is how I think the way that it is, and um, and I fight want me. you to talk about it. Yeah, yes. fight me. I want you to talk about it. I want you to have a dialogue about it. It wasn't just like, this is it, and now we're not going to discuss it anymore. Mm -hmm. So that's that's basically what she's up to. I think that, you know, as I say, I think that reading the full essay, is, it gets fairly academic, but once you get into the meat of it, it's pretty clear what she's talking about and particularly when she's talking about specific films you're like oh yeah I definitely understand how she is seeing this element and and the fact is she's right about a lot of things she's mm -hmm. right this is an interesting approach and it's an approach that it the more that you watch film and the more that you consider film from this perspective the more you recognize it you see like yeah that's what she's talking about yeah this is like what we were talking about last week, where this is a way to look at things. This isn't the law of how you have to. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I, I can remember even from a young age, because I was watching, you know, grown up movies when I was nine and 10 years old. Um, And I can remember just even as a kid, there'd be times where I'm like, okay, this man is talking to this woman and we see his face, but like her boobs are in the middle of the frame. Like mm -hmm. why, you know? And um, the way, like we talked, we've talked extensively about Wonder Woman versus um, Justice League mm -hmm. and how Wonder Woman is shot in, in her film where it's all, you know, showing her strength physically versus showing her as a sexual object and like scoping up her leg you know or whatever and those are the kinds of things that um that you can really see and this essay as lauren very well uh described it it talks about why that is and mm -hmm. what the messages are because of those choices um yeah so definitely if you haven't read that you should. We'll link it again in the show notes this week. But um, Kim, can you talk a little bit about your 
your thoughts on the male gaze and the female gaze? I first I jumped into this. It's been a while since I reread this. I mean, I was feminist, you know, film and film school. So I probably have eight copies of this essay laying around. It is at its root. It's very hard to initially to jump into. And it's was even it was kind of hard initially to, you know, wrap my head around it because in the roots of where this come from, I think, are completely true. All you need to look at is something like, you know, James Bond. Uh, the example, you know, something to go more contemporary, Harley Quinn and Suicide Squad versus Harley Quinn and Birds of Prey. I mean, it's there. It's clearly there. Do I believe it's always there? No. Um, I part of what I've done in my research and on my YouTube page is trying to turn an eye towards those examples where you see instances of um, where I use the term female gaze popping out. Like for example, the example I always go to is something in like where the boys are, where you see Connie Francis, you know, sitting on the beach openly sizing up George Hamilton. It's, I mean, to go back to what I said earlier, there's so much gray in film. It depends on the film. It depends on the, you know, director, the filmmaker. There's so much that all plays into it. But I believe as a whole, looking at mainstream Hollywood cinema, this it's incredibly prevalent. And it's rightly a groundbreaking work for it. I, th- I think that it's interesting that then you, you begin to slide into this issue of the female gaze, you know, so what Mulvey is proposing, right, is that this is that this is the way that cinema looks. This is the way that it's at least narrative cinema. Um, but then the then, of course, that always that opens the question, OK, well, is there such a thing as the female gaze? Uh, and if there is, what is it and how do we tell the difference? And it is again, it's easier to come up with examples of something than it is necessarily to, um, to to like propose a theory for, which is why I think that Mulvey's essay, when you actually get into the meat of it and you begin talking about stuff like Vertigo, you begin to understand better what she's trying to get at mm-hmm. uh, versus the, the headier, you know, theoretics of it. It's just like with scopophilia and this and that. It's like, okay, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> um, it is into, hard. <laughs> yeah, it, it's difficult. And it's difficult sometimes to wrap your head around because you're, you're kind of, up in the sky sort of theoretics and like, okay, well now can we bring it down and actually look at um, what film is doing and even what it's not doing. So you can, the, the issue with Vertigo is you can make an argument um, about Vertigo as being this kind of the typical male gaze or a film like Peeping Tom, which does uh, the Michael Powell film, mm-hmm. which does something similar, which is quite literally about a man murdering women with his camera. I mean, you know, it, you can't get much much more psychoanalytic than that, a film <laughs> about that. Um, but one of the interesting things that you can turn around and do, and in some ways it might be considered reading against the grain, but on the other hand, you're like, well, how, you know, if, if we're proposing the film simply as film, there is no such thing as reading against the grain, would be to look at Vertigo from an opposite perspective and say that this is actually a critique of the this objectification and exploitation of the female figure of the female body as a symbol, right? And and if you look at Vertigo, a lot of the film is about just that. It's about a man imposing his will on this passive female figure who is not in fact passive. She is a full living human being who is 
initially, who, you know, we initially think of as a victim and then the film kind of complicates our emotions about that. And then ultimately she does become a victim. She is a victim of the male gaze. And so you can read Vertigo not as, as uh, you can read Vertigo in a feminist manner that is more of a positive feminist look in saying that the film is actually doing the very things that we're talking about and is critiquing those things. But so it's, it's interesting where these things kind of come into play and, and how they, they push and pull because a lot of feminist criticism is a reaction against patriarchy. And so, but it takes as its foundation, the assumption that the film is patriarchal. Mm-hmm. And then you, when you begin to get into discussion of the female gaze or something like that, you begin to get into so, so discussion of birds of prey. Well, the pr- perspective that you're taking there is the film is not patriarchal. So what is the film doing? You know, what is it is using the gaze and it's using the gaze of the camera. In some ways, it's reacting against uh, some of the things that were done in Suicide Squad. And I would stand by that. Um, so how is it looking differently? It's looking at the same characters. It's looking at the same women but it's looking at them differently. They're not existing for men. Yeah. They're subjects. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, we actually got a question. I think this came up last week, but we deferred it to this week because it felt more um, topical this week. Um I am not sure how to say this handle, but at, Priya Prism NZ. I think Um, I I got that right. Um, Sorry if I didn't. Uh, Please correct me if I'm wrong. When guys seem to get all excited about a genre flick, for example, I don't know, The Running Man, is that any different for when gals get excited about Birds of Prey? Yes. That is... I... I, can I defer to Lauren and then fill in <laughs> after that? That's kind yeah. of a, I need time to unpack that. <laughs> uh, well, I believe he tried, he tried to clarify this actually later. And I think that what he was trying to say was that, you know, you, that men look at the running man as like a critique of, um, maybe a critique of capitalist society and a critique of, uh, right, uh, most definitely. Right. And women look at birds of prey as a critique of patriarchal society. And I think that that's fair. I think that one of the things that we always have to pinpoint is the difference between a a more oppressed subgroup and a less oppressed sort of dominant, um, dominant, I don't know how to put it, gender. (laughs) I don't know what else to say. So, you know, if if you're talking about, so, you know, if you're talking about the divide between men and women, okay, well, you can also break that down into um, uh, race, you could break that down into uh, gender identity, more specifically, people who are trans, uh, people who are not trans, etc. You can break that down into uh, sexuality, so the LGBTQ community versus, so, versus, uh, you know, straight people, heterosexual people, et cetera, et cetera. And so you can break that down deeper and deeper and deeper. Um, but if you're just talking about this very binary men and women, right, uh, which is not the best way to do it, but let's just say that we're going to do that right now. Um, I think that the second you have a film that is being produced 
with a female spectator in mind. And I would argue that that is what Birds of Prey is. Birds of Prey, I, I said it more bluntly on Twitter recently, <laughs> that I don't think Birds of Prey gives a shit if men watch it. Mm-hmm. Agreed. I think that it's more, if you want to watch it and if you like it, awesome, but it's not really for you. It is for women. It is being made for women by women and it is being directed towards women. It's being directed towards specifically female experience and female experience within patriarchy, right? And that's kind of all the layers that it's, that it's um, representing. So I think that there is a degree, we are so unused to being subjects and we're so used, we're so unused to seeing ourselves reflected on the screen and I think that that's one of the things that's happening with Birds of Prey. We talked about it with Wonder Woman. We talked about it with Ghostbusters 2016, that there's this kind of outpouring of support for those films from particularly from women and, and an outpouring of hatred for those films, particularly from straight men. Mm-hmm. Um, that the, but the female, the, the generalized, right? We're speaking generalities, but the generalized female reaction to those films was I am seeing myself for the first time. I'm seeing something in my experience being shown via these heroic characters for some of us for the very first time. Uh, and there were jokes being passed around like women leaving Wonder Woman going like, oh, is this how straight white men feel all the time? Because I feel like I could lift a tank, you know? It's, but it's that, it's that sense of being represented. And I think that that is the difference. Men particularly straight white men are used to being represented on screen. They're used to being the default. Women aren't. And in fact, we're used to digging sometimes in, in films for someone to identify with. And very often that winds up not being a female character or winds up being a female character that you practically have to rewrite in order to make it okay. Uh, and so when you're talking about the reaction to something like Birds of Prey, the female reaction to something like Birds of Prey, the reaction is much more, I think, internal and emotional and elevating than it is for a straight white man watching something like The Running Man, where you're already used to seeing those images of yourself, though they might be representing something new for you um, in you know, anti-capitalism or pro-socialism or something like that. But that's a, a much more subtle gradation than what women are experiencing with something like Birds of Prey. Yeah. I I mean, a couple of years ago, I remember at the Oscars when Kumail Nanjiani, who is Pakistani, talked about growing up as a kid, having to find ways to identify with all these white guys mm-hmm. in movies mm-hmm. and how, like, if he could do that, then white dudes can find ways to identify with him in his movies. And it's the same for women. I mean, I think that's one of the problems. I think you're exactly right, Lauren. I think that's one of the problems with, with men and why there's so much hatred for some of these films about uh, that are about women and that don't really give a shit what the men think because they have never had to try to identify themselves in someone else that doesn't look like them. Mm-hmm. And they really struggle with that. And it's, it's interesting to watch the temper tantrums that emerge over that when we're supposed to just sit down and, and just shut up and take it. And it's, it's a very interesting thing um, for myself. I oh, Man, when I saw Wonder Woman for the first time, actually a couple of times that I watched it, I actually cried because 
Um, I just I felt really emotional watching that film because even though I grew up, I was a child of the 80s and I grew up with characters like Ellen Ripley and um, Sarah Connor and Princess Leia and some of these really awesome women, but they were always presented by male directors and and so watching wonder woman which i grew up on that tv show and i loved the tv show i always loved wonder woman and it just it felt like a movie i had literally been waiting for my whole life and not only did i finally get it but i got it from a female perspective and it was such a such a just it felt like this big fulfilling like experience for me and I think Birds of Prey was a little bit of that for me too and it really bothers me when I see men who even like they even say that Birds of Prey is a good movie but think of how much better it would have been if they would have toned down the violence so that young girls could see it and it's like but why would they why should they have to you know nobody said that about Deadpool Mm -hmm. and the reason they didn't have to say that about Deadpool is because there are plenty of superhero films for boys. Exactly. That any boy of any age can watch that's not Deadpool. And there just aren't that many options for girls. But I'm glad they didn't tone down the violence and the language of Birds of Prey. I think the violence and the language was part of the point. Mm-hmm. Privilege is such a hard thing if you've been raised around it, if you've been rooted in it, there's still times where I, you know, I catch myself, you know, and I, you know, I realize where I've, you know, I've hit my own privilege being, you know, white growing up in suburbia. When you're suddenly faced with that realization that, you know, no, the lead doesn't always have to look like you. That is such a hard thing to logic your way out of. I mean, something like Birds of Prey, just to see what hit me hardest with that. I mean, it's such, it could be seen as trivial, but Harley Quinn and that breakfast sandwich. (laughs) You know, she's not (laughs) exist. You know, some days you just want to throw on the bare minimum, go out and you just want that food. The, The, for seeing a female character depicted who is not, a sec you know she's not being seen here as a sexual being you know they're just what i'm always looking for i like to see my characters as human and that's why i had i mean i was a child of the late 80s so you know growing up watching films like the 1984 ghostbusters you know i never looked at sigourney weaver's character in that as somebody who to look up to i was looked up to harold ramis you know realize that you're watching these films necessarily through the gaze of this filmmaker and as women we've just had to kind of imprint on where we could you know princess leia was always my go-to you know kick-ass female lead but representation is such a powerful thing and white particularly straight white men have never had to stretch so the leading men have always looked like Arnold Schwarzenegger. They've looked like John Wayne. This, you know, dates back to, you know, the beginning of film, the beginning of literature. But we've seen with films like Crazy Rich Asians, Black Panther, Wonder Woman, how important and how vital it is to people being able to see themselves up on the screen. And it's important. Yeah, absolutely. I I think that it goes back to, you know, we're kind of discussing the female gaze and what that means. And it's easy to see when you're talking about uh, women that, you know, 
you can it's it's kind of it's the side by side comparisons of here's how she's shown here's how Harley Quinn is shown in Suicide Squad here's how he, she is shown in um, in Birds of Prey and the differences and you you can see it right if you just look at the frames or you look at the scenes you're like yeah I totally get it and that's a very stark comparison because it's obvious but there are, there's greater subtlety to it also it's the way that the camera looks and. I think that it is the intended audience. Like I'm saying, mm -hmm. I think that, and, and sometimes it's very subtle. It's that sense of like, you are, it's the difference between you are meant to identify with this figure versus you are meant to want to consume this figure. You were meant to desire this figure. Right. And that difference, and that's not saying that, that's not leaving out also the, the, the concept of the queer gaze that, or anything like that. Um, in fact, very often the female gaze and the queer gaze begin to overlap slightly. Um, because if you're looking, and, and it's, kind of, it's sort of sad, really, for, for heterosexual women, when if you're, if you're looking at a woman who is being represented as, as powerful, as intelligent, as, or also as a total fucking mess, you know, Harley Quinn, for a lot of that film, is a total fucking mess. She's like, she's having a difficult time, right? But you're seeing that as a part of, of your reality, right? There's almost this sense of like, well, it's also queer. It's like, well, why is that queer? You know, heterosexual women are a total fucking mess sometimes. <laughs> you know, it's it's the the subjectifying, as it were, of the of characters like that, particularly characters that we're used to seeing represented differently, that we're used to seeing objectified. And I think that characters like Wonder Woman um, or Harley Quinn are very much in that category. Um, because they've been so heavily identified with comic books and very male-centric visions. Um, when you actually see them as subjects, you're like, oh, oh my God, you know, it is that, that almost emotional reaction to it. Because you're seeing them through the gaze of, of a female spectator. Mm -hmm. and, and I absolutely agree with you guys that, that I think that one of the problems that a lot of male spectators have is that they have not experienced that in any major way. Uh, and they do not know. So they're suddenly essentially being forced to take the perspective of a woman yeah. and they have no idea what to do with that. And it seems like an assault to them. It seems like it's something that, that is attacking them personally. Uh, and what they don't understand is that that's the world that the women and, you know, and you can expand that to, to also talk about um, uh, people of color and queer people, et cetera, have lived in constantly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and like, it, it's interesting. I don't know if this has been the experience that you guys have had with the men that you've known, but I know so many straight men that or heterosexual men who are so afraid of being thought of as gay, which is stupid. Um, but they're just so afraid of that, that they think any little thing might give people the wrong impression of them. And to like, to the extreme where I remember when Casino Royale came out um, a few years ago, like, gosh, what was that? 10, 12 years ago now. Um, and there's that shot where Daniel Craig comes up out of the water and it's like you just see him kind of emerging and you see like his form. And I remember talking to a couple men who just thought that was so unnecessary. And why were the women all like freaking out about that? If it was a woman, they would have been all mad. I'm like, you mean like every other James Bond movie <laughs> uh, where they do that with all the Bond girls? OK, uh, but that's the thing. It's like it's they like 
when they see that and they see it shot that way, it's like an assault on them, on their senses, because they just can't look at a man that way. And it's it's really interesting to listen to them talk about that because they're just it's so oftentimes it's just so expected and even sometimes really subtle the way that women are shot where you almost don't notice that the focus is on that giant slit up to her hip (laughs) in her dress, you know, Mm -hmm. and they just don't notice that. So then when they see it, when it's a man, it's really just like in their face because it's not something that they see very often. Yeah. Well, and then, and then that brings it to the argument. um, What is, if the female, what is the female gaze? Is it simply a reversal of the male gaze? So a looking at men at male figures, the way that, that, we look at um, that the way that the male gaze looks at women. Kim, what do you think? I have always approached it, and it could stem from the films that I'm usually looking at. I will look at it through that, like if I'm seeing, especially a direct approximation of a shot from a you know the female character looking at a male character. Um, I will call it that, but I've also broadened it out. I mean, and this is working with classic cinema, but an acknowledgement of female sexuality. Mm-hmm. What um, female desire, you know, it's, um, classic TV, the root I'm kind of, I've been working a lot of TV lately, something like even F Troop, which hasn't aged well, but the fact you have the Wrangler Jane character openly going after Captain Parmenter the whole time in the middle of the 20th century where we were still coming out of the Madonna and the whore, you know, the good girl, bad girl dichotomy, letting women be complex, letting, you know, quote unquote, the good girl be sexual. Somebody like Anne Margaret, I always come Mm -hmm. back to as a typification of that because she wasn't, I always feel like Hollywood didn't know what to do with her necessarily because she wasn't a femme fatale. She wasn't a bad girl, but she was sexy. So suddenly, you know, letting the girl next door be sexy, letting more than just the femme fatale have desires, wants to be sexual. That's kind of where I come at it from. Yeah. Well, and Mm -hmm. I think that I think that's great, Kim. Thank you. Um, And for me, I think that it's not just a straight reversal. Um, Like you just flip it and suddenly it's the way that women look at men because the way that we look at men is different than the way men look at us. Men Mm -hmm. look at women because they want to consume us. And, you know, for a man looking at a hot woman, he thinks of all the things that he wants to do to her. For a woman looking at a hot man, usually it's all the things she wants to let him do to her. (laughs) It's not what she wants to do to him. And that's a big difference. Yeah. Well, I think about, you know, some of the shots, uh, and, and it's not the entire film, but some of the shots in the first Thor movie. Mm-hmm. of uh of what's her name jane lo- like he comes out of the shower and and he's chris hemsworth <laughs> uh-huh. and he's gorgeous right you know and and you see him like walking around and her look <laughs> and her and um what's her name darcy looking at him just being like wow <laughs> you know and and the the camera and it's kind of a joke but it's also the camera is is kind of meaning for that to happen but yeah it's mm-hmm. it's this like oh he's he's got this fantastic body but as numerous women have pointed out, and like men tend to be like, oh, you just think, you just want, you know, Chris Evans or Chris Hemsworth, et cetera, because they have nice bodies. Just like, well, yeah, they have nice bodies. 
but also like Thor is a sweetheart. Like he's he's this ridiculously big, uh, you know, god, and he's also a dork. Like he's he's funny. He does funny things. He's very sweet. Um, he's very much like you know, I will protect you, fair maiden. But also, he, you know, he's a he's an idiot, and and that like whole thing is is quite adorable. So there's a there are gradations of it. So yeah, I. I I do agree with you guys. Um, and we've also talked about, you know, some of the shots in Wonder Woman of uh, Steve Trevor, like when he's uh, naked in the bath and the way that she looks at him and the way, again, the way that the camera looks at him, there's an appreciation that is not objectification, that is not, like you're saying, uh, uh, Karen, this, that is not, I want to, um, I want to own him, right? It's more like, oh, wow, he's cute. <laughs> Yeah, we like to appreciate what we're seeing, not think of, you know, yeah, it's it's just very, the intention, I think, behind the looking tends to be very different mm-hmm. from men and women. And that that matters. And I think that that's one of the reasons why men have such a hard time um, when it's when it's flipped, because they still have internalized that they're supposed to want this thing and they don't want that. Yeah. And there's, I, I mean, th- just think about what you were saying, Kim, about um, uh, older films. One of the, I recently rewatched Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. I was just thinking about that in the lead up to this, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and particularly, and there's a lot, I mean, there, that's a complicated film in terms of gender dynamics and sexual dynamics and stuff like that. But one of the, one of the things that I always pinpointed is the scene is Jane Russell's, um, uh, what ain't anybody here for love? Yes, so the, much. Yes, <laughs> the depiction of the male body, and not just the male body, but the way that she is engaging with the men around her, uh, and you know them wearing the tiny shorts that are also very close to the, the tone of their skin, and like all of that. There's and it's intentional. There's no doubt about that. Like you, you know the the emphasis on on her basically walking around being like oh this is great isn't this wonderful time in that one yeah yeah Yeah. and but so it's it's interesting that that a film of that era and it it kind of it kind of manages to get away with it i think because it sort of plays it off as a joke Mm -hmm. uh but is essentially to say like here's the single woman who is surrounded by these fantastically toned attractive men and she wants them she wants all of them and she's going to talk about how she wants them um and the camera is going to allow that right the camera is going to allow the the gaze to look at them in in very much in the same way that she's looking at them I mean, that movie is a whole, because, I mean, that scene, and then, I mean, Marilyn Monroe is the 1950s, you know, typification of the male gaze. You think of her when you think of 1950s sex appeal. However, the fact is that relation, that film, the most important relationship there between the characters is between the two women. Yeah. You know, the, the bond between the Marilyn Monroe and the Jane Russell characters. So there, I was I was reading a Mulvey essay where she was kind of referring to that film. And I, you know, I brought a completely different reading than she did. Because, I mean, I see it as a very progressive example of handling of the female voice, the female perspective. I mean, it was coming, it's, you have to dig a little bit, but there's a lot there. And it's a very complex film. I think that this goes back a little bit. I won't go on about this for for too long, I promise. Um, uh, I think it goes back a little bit to what I was saying about the 
feminist, initial feminist theory and feminist film criticism as being kind of a reaction against. It was the, it's the assumption that it is always the male gaze that is functioning, it is a patriarchal society that is functioning, and that that is what film does, that's what film represents. And so uh, in feminist readings, you're essentially reading negatively at some level. And I do think that there is an argument to be made about reading more positively, about saying, no, these films are actually representing these things in more complex ways. So you're getting uh, progress progressiveness coming exactly. through in things like Gentlemen Prefer Blondes um, or in Vertigo, uh, that it's actually that you can actually read some of these things as a critique or as a parody or as kind of a, at least a more complicated approach to this this overarching construct, which is patriarchy, right? But how do women kind of get their own way and function within that? And so much of something like Gentlemen Prefers Blondes is about that. It's about how do women have power and maintain power in a society that essentially requires them to be powerless. And you've got two of the major sex symbols of the 1950s, Marilyn Monroe and Jane Russell, doing that together. Mm -hmm. And it's... It's fascinating, but I think that it's much more interesting if you read it as more of a progressive film than if you read it as just sort of like, oh, this is just a re reinforcement of patriarchal norms. Exactly, exactly. I mean, the film that first opened my eyes to all of this was Gilda, who was kind of what mm. kind of propelled me into everything. And Richard Dyer's writing on that was kind of what shaped my whole perspective. And he writes such fascinating things. I mean, here we have you know, the iconic, you know, noir, femme fatale, the striptease, everything about that. But when Richard Dyer was writing about this film, he talks about the Glenn Ford character, Johnny, and the, feminine, the, the feminization of him. Mm. And how, just how pretty he is, and how well made up he's, you know, how much attention they've paid to his appearance in this. And he talks about the reversal of, you know, the gaze to go right back on Johnny. Mm -hmm. And just exactly what you're saying, Lauren, taking a more interesting perspective. Yeah, reading against the grain on what's going on as opposed to just a straight, you know, this is, this is, fem you know, this is female gaze, this, you know, or this is male gaze, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. It's funny. I talked about this a little bit last week, but it's funny because since I've, been in the world of actually writing about film and interviewing people talking to a lot of filmmakers um not only directors but costume designers makeup artists production designers editors all those you know all those people that work behind the scenes to make a film and um it's really interesting and it's frustrating to me when people tell me like oh stop reading so much into that and it's like it's really frustrating for me because everything it's that goes there. into a film, no matter, even if it's like the simplest, like I think one of the examples I gave last week was Jackass. Like everything that's there in that movie is there for a reason. And when you look at a film like Gentlemen Prefer Blondes or Gilda or Birds of Prey or, you know, Fast and the Furious, the dynamics in that film are often very intentional usually very intentional occasionally something will kind of happen positively by accident but for the most part i think when you look at things and you go wow this is this is actually can be read kind of subversively i i think usually that's not an accident yeah no definitely and and i think that this is we were talking about auteur theory 
uh, mm -hmm. last week. And I think that this is, this is actually one of the things that undercuts our tour theory a little bit, uh, is that we tend to simply say, like, is the director male, is the director female? Okay, so the, the men, that's male gays, the, the women, that's female gays. All right, fine. Which isn't true, necessarily. Right. And, and we're talking about Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. It's a, a film uh, directed by a man. Uh, but one of the other things to actually look at in terms of approach, and it's it's difficult to parse out, you know, who has had influence where, but it's, you know, look at the number of female producers that there were on certain films. Mm -hmm. Look at, you mm -hmm. know, not just the man directed it, oh, but it, the screenplay was written by a woman, mm -hmm. or the book that the screenplay is based on was written by a woman. And it begins, and the more that you look at kind of those below the line um, influences, the more you begin to go like, oh, actually, this is this is probably more nuanced than I would even think that it was if you're only basing it upon uh, upon the director. So, for instance, the the other uh, just last night, a couple of friends and I were watching um, uh, First Wives Club, which is has has its issues, but you know it it has it is a very female centric film. Mm -hmm. uh, there are some instances of the male gaze, but it, it represents really well the dynamics between women and female friendships and the importance of female friendships and all of this. And one of the things that we were kind of surprised by was the fact that it was it was written and directed by men. Uh, and then I pointed out, I was like, well, but did you notice it's based on a book by a woman? And then you begin to go like, okay, well, what else could have possibly been influenced here? Were there other women that were involved in this that are maybe not getting credit? Or, um, you know, did the actresses have more of a say in the way that they shaped their characters? Mm -hmm. and, and then also you get male directors and male writers who are able to engage with this. And we talk about people like Douglas Sirk, who is, in many ways, he make he made women's films, and his films are very subversive and very progressive in a lot of ways in their gender relationships. Uh, and so Sir it's Cukor, important. yeah, uh, Paul Feig, <laughs> I mean, exactly. pops up. Yeah, so it's uh, uh, um, It's always, so it's always good to sometimes look at the director, but then look past the director and look at the producers, uh, particularly when you're talking about classical Hollywood films. Virginia who Van Ass on it? Gilda. Yeah. Who produced it? Who wrote it? Who was kind of, um, you know, who can you assume had some sort of a more creative influence on it? And, and then it becomes a lot more complicated than just, you know, the director is the author of the film. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, Oh man, I was just gonna say something and I totally lost my point. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. Um oh, yeah, it's gone. Oh well, that's okay. What you said was was spot on, so no need to add. <laughs> um so where do we go from here? Where does contemporary what does contemporary feminist film criticism look like? What do we do now? Um Besides just get into a lot of fights with stupid men on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Kim, what's been, what's been um, the response to your YouTube channel since you launched it? And, and what sort of um, comments and, and things have you gotten from people? Have it, has it been pretty positive? Uh, very positive. I mean, the most what's completely been just you know, making my little heart sing. Um, even, you know, looking at an example towards those, the little rebellions, I have a video up there on Charles Nelson Riley, 
and the you know uh broadway director performer you know glorified 1970s game show panelist and part of my objective on a lot of these videos is trying to for example in his it was trying to redefine there's been this narrative that he's just this you know silly foppish game show panelist and saying no you know there's he was this he was this he was this as a gay man in 1970 merely existing was even a you know a success and a quiet rebellion and there's been just so much love and affection towards just being at reclaiming some of these stories and turning an eye towards, okay, this may be seen as, through one lens, this may be seen as an example of classic entertainment at its worst. But my belief is these people were, you know, these people were people. These people were human beings. They bring... No actor is defined purely by his single role, a single role, a single performance. They have careers, they have lives. And that, to me, all goes into playing with the cultural readings of these works. And some of them, you know, don't get seen as much when I play with the lesser names, but it's definitely a positive thing. And I think just as a whole, we need to continue looking at representation you know, women, LGBT, you know, people of color, all of that. We just need to keep fighting for more representation on screen because we'll slowly get through what we're in, but that's the main goal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank you, Kim. Lauren? Um, yeah, I, I agree with that. I think that it's it's very important also to look back on, on our history and to know. So I think that it is important to read people like Mulvey and Barbara Creed and um, uh, and Molly Haskell, et cetera. But then it's also important to look forward and to be like, okay, these are the this is the basis uh, of sort of the way that we approach film. But we need to continue to move forward. We could we I, I do think that there's a lot of value in kind of reacting against even their presuppositions in in presupposing, as we were discussing, that mainstream film is just automatically patriarchal because of the surrounding society. And seeing, as Kim is saying, where that is undercut, where mm-hmm. um, those quiet rebellions, I love that term, uh, is occurring. And, and sometimes, you know, and, and you can find things that are very surprising. Uh, I, I think that it's worth continuing to look back on cinema and seeing where have we lost the thread you know uh not just where has the canon lost the thread so why do we canonize um dw griffith but not alice guiblache and that's changing and that's a good thing um more and more people are becoming aware of uh, Mm -hmm. female influence both behind the camera and in front of the camera um, at varying degrees of, of Hollywood structure and of independent film and of international cinema. Um, and it's really important to continue to look back at those and to continue to kind of uncover and champion those things. Uh, and I think, you know, Kim is doing a great job doing this and looking at at, uh, at cinema and at television in a different way. Um, and I think that it's important that all of us continue to do that, you know, whatever we happen to be interested in. I love horror films, right? So I'm always interested when a new film comes out and there are, it's a female director or a female writer. Um, I'm always interested to like go back to some horror films, be like, oh, a woman directed this or a woman produced this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Slumber Party Massacre was something that I had <laughs> never seen until a couple months ago. And I was like, 
oh, this is weird, but this is actually really subversive. Like, this uh -huh. is a very interesting kind of approach to, to film. And again, it's it's the sort of thing that you don't expect. Um, and and I think that the people like Lois Weber and Alice Guy Blachet and uh, um, Nanina, when we had her on a couple of weeks ago, talked about Wendy Toy. Uh, these these figures that are very influential in cinema and very influential in um, the formation of uh, cinema now need to kind of be elevated and discussed and we need to see that this that it's time maybe for feminist criticism to not just be reacting against patriarchy but also to be reading within um, this this changing society and say like you know these films represent more than what they appear to and that that's important and there are these subversions there is this progressiveness uh, and to continue to apply that to to contemporary films and to champion those films that are um that are challenging and that are important and even the ones that are mediocre even the ones that are like this doesn't work as well as it should and to look towards those as well because there's a wide variety of female artists that are producing a wide variety of art and it's important to to focus on them and to talk about them and to see what they're co actually contributing to contemporary cinema yeah absolutely and i think that i mean everything you just both of you just said i i agree with wholeheartedly so i'm only going to add to it um that i think it's really important for us to raise each other up as well and mm -hmm. we're in a business that can be very, com that is very competitive by nature. And I think it's really important when, you know, I've been trying to do more of this, but when I see a really good article, criticism, interview, whatever it is by another female writer, I, you know, I'm trying to do better about sharing those and telling people like go read this person she really knows what she's talking about and um this is this is really well written and i mean there are a lot of great men out there too that we really appreciate and admire and respect and it's not to take anything away from them but a lot of them don't need as much help <laughs> they don't need as much support as the female voices do and so i think that that's something else that for myself personally that's something else i'm trying to do better about is helping elevate not only other not only women directors and screenwriters but other female critics mm -hmm. absolutely agreed absolutely um, well is there anything anybody would like to add to anything that we've talked about uh women are always right obviously <laughs> i mean that, that goes without saying uh, that that's, I'm yeah. that. goes without saying that's that's such the truth well just to add on to to really briefly to what you were saying karen i also think that it's important to not to necessarily call out other female critics but also to to um to note that just because a, a woman says something I'm about to contradict myself. Just because a woman says something doesn't mean that she's right. Um, because the, there are, and you know, when you were talking about um, Ms. Mrs. America <laughs> earlier, mm -hmm. uh, there are women that are reactionary. There are women that kind of get where they want to be via um, just sort of reinforcing patriarchal mindsets and, re and excluding other women. And so I think that it's important when we see that happening to comment on it and to, you know, not necessarily to say like, uh, this you know, to call people names or anything like that, but just to, to actually say like, you know, this is not cool. This is not what we're supposed to be about. And, you know, just 
you know, you can't quote a female critic at me who is a known reactionary and say, well, because she thinks this, therefore all women think this. Uh, we're yeah. not a monolith. We are, we all have our own opinions. We all have our own ways of being. Uh, and, and you're not going to disprove my point by saying, well, you know, what's her name? Danny something or other. I can't even remember her full name. Uh, but it was just, she's a very reactionary critic and is very often elevated as being like, ah, well, because she said this, ergo, women agree with me. It's like, no, that's not how it works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a very good point. That's a very important point to mm-hmm. make too. And it's important to read and not just, this is why we need more women writing. It's not that we need less men, although, I mean, we kind of do. But um, the point isn't fewer men writing about film. The point is more women writing because then you get lots of different perspectives. I mean, yeah. the three of us could talk about one movie and all have three different points of view on it. And it doesn't exactly. mean that any of us are wrong. We just look at it differently based on our experiences, our perspectives, and and also just what we see when we're watching it. Well, we bang our head against the art, you know, every time a work comes out by a female filmmaker, you know, it has to suddenly speak for the genre. I remember talking about on this very podcast about how terrifying it is to think of one of these fails. There won't be another one for 20 years. If we have more female, you know, female critics, you know, women filmmakers, women writers, that ceases to be a problem suddenly not it doesn't have to speak we're not a monolith and it shouldn't have to exist like that but until more creatives are giving their due it's going to keep happening so that's why we need to keep fighting for more representation exactly exactly well that is going to close things up for this week thank you so much kim for joining us today thank you for thanks really for having fun. me i yeah. had fun we love having you back anytime that you want to join us. You are welcome. You know that the love door it. is Thank open. Um, just wanted to remind everyone really quickly that uh, about our Criterion Channel contest. We are giving away three months. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, uh, we're giving away a three-month subscription. And to enter, it's very easy. All you have to do is send us an email at citizendamepod at gmail.com. Uh, or you can send us a DM on Twitter or Facebook. And um, Twitter and Instagram are at Citizen Dame Pod, and Facebook is Facebook.com slash Citizen Dame. So any way that you want to reach us is fine. We want to make this as simple as possible. Just let us know what your big cinematic blind spot is. And it doesn't have to be a specific movie. We actually got a great comment from someone who said that their big blind spot is like a lot of films directed by women. So, I mean, that's, that's a really big one. That's great. So thank you. Um, and we just want to hear from you and we're really excited about this contest and, uh, spread the word. Um, and in addition to those ways of getting in touch with us, um, be sure to check out our official website. That's citizendamepod.com where Lauren is covering Tribeca right now and has had some great, um, great reviews of some of the films there. Uh, I think I'm, I just throwing this out. I haven't talked to you about this yet, Lauren, but I think I'm actually going to write about Mrs. America for Citizen Dame. Uh, Cause I have yeah. some things to say. It's already been covered on award circuit. So I think I'm going to talk about it on Citizen Dame where I feel like it's a better fit. <laughs> My thoughts are better placed there anyway. So um, do it. I definitely have a lot of things to say about that show. Um, but I'm 
going to hold off until I've actually seen all the episodes. So it's going to be probably a week or two before I get that done. Um, and we want to thank our patrons who are just so awesome and help keep things going. So huge shout out and thanks to Heather, Adriana, the Crooked Table podcast, Michael, James, Katie, Cariata, Mason, Matthew, Monty, Nanina, Nicole, Robert, Sharon, Steve, Tao, and Will. And if you would like to be a supporter of the show, you can go to patreon.com slash citizen dame and help us keep our hosting going, help us keep our website running. Um, we really, really appreciate that. Of course, there's no obligation whatsoever. And we totally understand that, especially in times like these, it's really hard for people. Um, and yeah, we're not expecting anything of, of, of anybody that can't do it. So um but you can go to patreon.com slash citizen dame for that. Uh, we also have our Zazzle store still. That is zazzle.com slash citizen dame. You can get keychains and buttons and t-shirts and all kinds of fun stuff. And we have our Ko-Fi, which is ko-fi.com slash citizen dame. You can also reach out to us individually. Kim, please tell folks where they can find you and where they can watch you. I am on YouTube at Female Gaze Productions and primarily on Twitter at Kpierce624. And I just want to say your YouTube show is great and I really like it. I haven't oh, watched as many you. episodes as I should, but every time that I catch one, it's the you do a really great job. I I'm appreciate really you saying it. that. Thank you. Yeah. Lauren, where can people find you? I'm on Twitter and Instagram at LH Business. And I am on Twitter and Instagram at Karen M. Peterson. So thank you all so much for listening. And we'll talk to you next time. Bye. Here is a letter from a manly man. I quote this letter in its entirety. Dear Miss Kale, since you know so much about the art of the film, why don't you spend your time making it? But first you will need a pair of B blank, 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 end quote. Mr. Dodo, I use the repetition in honor of your two attributes. Movies are made and criticism is written by the use of intelligence, talent, taste, emotion, education, and discrimination. I suggest it is time you and your cohort stop thinking with your genital jewels. There is a standard answer to this old idiocy of, if you know so much about the art of the film, why don't you make movies? You don't have to lay an egg to know if it tastes good. And if it makes you feel better, I have worked making movies, and I wasn't hampered by any biological deficiencies. <laughs>